Well, today's date is October 21st, 2018. Title of today's message is Samed Team Fighting. Samed is S-E-M-E-D. Samed Team Fighting. So here we go. During the conference, there was a tongue with interpretation that Elder Charlie gave. And Pastor Eric Stevens gave the interpretation. I want to read it for you guys. That's because our conference uh, closed just before the apostolic age ended and cessationism (laughs) began. We had a celebratory hat that went with it. It sticks up about this tall. So Pastor Eric Stevens uh, interpreted this. When Elder Charlie stepped up and began to speak, I believe I saw a scene that Nehemiah describes. This is Nehemiah 3.16. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David. As far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes, Pastor Massey earlier mentioned one of these heroes, Shama. Everybody say Shama. Shama. There we go. Who stood in the center of a field, and he defended it, with his hand frozen to the sword. It's a field of lentils. Long after the religious system had been burned down, after their walls had been destroyed by fire, and the institutions were gone, when Nehemiah went to look to see what remained there, was a marker to a great king, the tomb of David, and the house of the mighty heroes stood, still stood, and when Elder Charlie stepped up, he said, I am a great king, and the house of the mighty ones will stand. This, meaning the One Association 2018, is the building of a house of the mighty heroes. We are seeing what Nehemiah saw out of desolation. Restoration is rising. And in a thousand years, what we will be talking about in the kingdom to come are those that took their stand because of the word of God and his spirit made them mighty. We will become a house of mighty heroes that nothing can tear down. Amen. Amen. Let me explain uh, the word in Hebrew, Samed. This uh, is a part of the title. It's uh, Strong's number 6776. Basically, anywhere in the NIV you see the word team, it's translated from the word Samed. And in Hebrew, there is not a direct word for team. Samed means a couple, as in uh, uh, two things that are yoked together and no longer move independently of each other. Uh, In context, sometimes samed means the exact amount of ground that two animals yoked together could plow. Now, the reason that we're saying this is because throughout the Bible, a yoke represents a way of life. Throughout the Bible, to wear a teacher's yoke or a teacher's mantle or the yoke of the kingdom means that you have adopted the way of life. One of the things we're going to be talking about today involves what you are yoked to. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 10. Say there when you're there. Amen. There. Where is the right side of the room? Yeah? Justin Johnson. How about the left side of the room? 
Okay. Is the is the middle uh, Nick Slaughter or Nick Massey? Okay. Look, you can yell a colo, Romanian for there. You can yell uh, anything that you want to yell. Let us know when you get to the scripture. It uh, helps us know where you're at. Amen. Are y'all awake today? Yes. Y'all are not scared to speak in church, huh? No. Okay. Amen. Amen. Exodus 17, 10. Here we go. So Joshua fought. Say fought. Fought. The Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up on one side, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Look, church, today we're going to be talking about fighting in teams as a foundational truth of Scripture. Now, this is a church who's been for a long time saying, hey, teams, covenants, teams, teams, you've got to do teams. What we are understanding, what God has put on our heart is that we can't just talk about being in a team and then go live as individuals. We can't talk about fighting in a team as a foundational truth of the entirety of Scripture. Say entirety. Entirety. The whole thing. The whole Bible is is based on not singular individual people who do great exploits, but rather teams of people who follow the leading of the Lord, who are under the same yoke, who have the same vision, who are under the same call, and move forward to do much more than any of them can do on their own. Do you want to be measured by what you're doing on your own or would you rather get in a team that can help you to do more than you ever dreamed possible? When God added to the Sutherlands to this church, you know what I learned? Man, team is the best thing. I had talked about being in team. I had talked about being collegial. I had talked about being with friends. I had talked about being behind other people. But I had never lived in a team outside of my own marriage until I got with these men. My life is exponentially better than what it was before. What I'm able to accomplish now is no longer resting on what I can and can't do singularly. But what we have been put together for a righteous and a kingdom purpose. It is for righteousness sake that God added the three of us together. You can like us. You can not like us. You can say that you would have chosen different people. It's okay. We would have probably chosen different people to be together too. It's the truth. Because we don't want to choose what we need. We like to choose what we want. And this together for righteousness sake, you're seeing, you're benefiting from a team fighting together. And we're going to show you today how that that is a foundational truth throughout scriptures and that none of us are exempt from the need to be in a team and fight. I want to share with you guys the choosing of what we want a lot of times when it comes to fighting. Because I think even before Hollywood ever existed, what did exist is the imagination that we all have about a fight. Come on, especially you guys. You think about getting in a fight, and what do you imagine? I did this, I did that, and then I put them down. I took on 50 guys, and I got them all. I want to show you guys a video clip of the imagery that I think we've all had at some point in time. Hollywood actually did a good job illustrating what's false here.
Oh yeah, this is me in my dream. Take that! That was actually video footage of Pastor Matt's dream last night. I just, uh... Yeah, it's amazing how the glasses stayed on the entire time. (laughs) My favorite part about that video is, you know how you start teaching your children to put your hand on on the adult's shoulder just to let them know that you're ready to speak, right? Does any any parents do that? They're just supposed to wait? That's clearly what our, our enemies did in that one. They just said, I'm about to fight with you now. Oh, okay, thanks. You know, aside from the fact that Keanu Reeves borrowed his jacket from Abimbola Daramola. (laughs) One of the things that all of these movies have in common that is totally fantasy is that your enemy will wait and attack you in almost a single file fashion. You know, what most nations are concerned with is a fight in more than one hemisphere. What uh, most defense experts are concerned with is a mob. The reality of spiritual warfare is it is always a mob. Uh, I I want to tell you that the way God has designed your life so that you begin as single is because you largely have a one-front fight. When you add somebody that you're in life covenant with, a lifelong unbreakable bond then what happens is their struggles also become your struggles. And it's good because you always have somebody with you. But you also pick up struggles you never had before. Now, it's important that in this moment you remain silent. Anybody who's been married in the last year or two, you thought it would solve every problem you have. And the reality is it multiplied some problems. You are now responsible for someone else's behavior, and you have absolutely no ability to control it, right? And that's frustrating to you because you're not a dictator. You're a team, right? In the spiritual world, your enemy does not tap you on the shoulder and say, right now you are fighting with anger, but in a few minutes you'll have unspeakable despair. He he doesn't say that. We're capable of simultaneous emotions at the same time. You can love somebody and actually be filled with rage towards them. Now, why are so many of you shaking your head? Yes. (laughs) Should I call? No, we won't do that. My hope in telling you about this is I want to relate this back to Exodus 17 for you. The cry of Israel comes from Deuteronomy 6, but you're in Exodus 17. It's Shema Ya Israel Adonai Elohenu Adonai Ichad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is never conflicted about anything. I I mention that a lot because we're conflicted about everything. I'm of two opinions about Starbucks. I hate their demonic logo. I hate their liberal practices. I love their coffee. It's It's a genuine struggle inside of me. I think sometimes, you know, out of principle, we should protest. Then I realize that they won't feel our protest, but I will feel the lack of coffee. And 
I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm of two opinions about some things. God is never of two opinions about anything. Before we ever come into unity on a team, understand something from Exodus 17. There are three basic groups that are being described. There is Joshua that is down in the valley fighting. He's analogous to your flesh, the one that is actually carrying out the will of God. There is Moses who is holding up the righteous standards of God. He could be a metaphor for your spirit, that part of you that has been redeemed, that is closest to the Lord, that knows exactly what he wants. And then Aaron and her are very similar to your soulish realm. They were given to you to support what God says, what your spirit knows is right. So that the, the group of your spirit and your soul could gang up on your flesh and say, go carry this out. When we are not in personal unity, that's not what happens. Your flesh wants something. Your soul decides that, you know, I think we can justify this and, and gangs up on your spirit and you end up having sinned. God wants to put you in right order. He wants to put your family in right order. And he wants you to be in a team that is in right order. This is the very first battle described in Israel's history. When they left Egypt, they didn't have to fight. The Lord did everything. All they had to do was step forward in faith. This is the first time they have to fight. This is so that the Holy Spirit could illuminate to you in Exodus 17 a couple of things. On a personal level, your spirit holds up the standards of God. You must cause your emotions to support what your spirit knows is right based on the word of God. And it is your flesh's job, no matter how difficult, to carry out what your spirit and your emotions tell it to do. On the next level, a very basic thing, you cannot do this alone. Moses standing on the mountain holding up the standards would be a great example, but nobody would be carrying it out. Moses, without emotions, if he were Spock, if, if he were a, a Stoic philosopher trying to have no emotions, then where is the support from Aaron and her? And if you were without a body, obviously you're not carrying this out. The point is, you get yourself in order, and then the Lord will show you how to be in order with other people. Having fellowship with him gets you right and gets you right with each other. And he begins to build a team because he wants to accomplish something. I want to read to you from Ecclesiastes, and then Brother Wade will be expounding on something for you. My basic premise to begin this with is relationships are foundational to the kingdom. If Moses is not close to Aaron and her, this doesn't work. If they don't love each other and they don't care, it doesn't work. If Aaron, her, and Moses are not close to Joshua, if they don't love each other, if they're not united, yoked in one purpose, this doesn't work. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. It's chapter 4, verse 9. Say there if you're there. there. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Now, on one level, everybody who reads this understands it. Hey, two are better than one. That's not hard for us in our rationale. But in ministry, Americans do not believe this. There is one name on the sign. There is one pulpit. There is one senior, executive, CEO. Everything starts for us 
with a hierarchy, and we actually believe that it's the only way to do things. That if you have two equals, there'll be gridlock. And perhaps that's because we've been influenced by our political system. <laughs> okay? But the kingdom is not our political system. The Genesis 2.18 says it's not good that man's alone. Here, we find out that two people have a return for their work. It's possible for a single person to accomplish many things in ministry and never actually have a return for his work. You know, first and foremost, you represent God. Uh, You single parents, I love you. I'm all for you. We are fighting for you. And the example that God designed was a couple. And the reason that he designed that is because you represent the Lord in covenant. In ministry, you misrepresent the Lord if you are representing him as a singular entity only. Even God takes a plural form in the Hebrew words, Elohim. This idea is he always gets a singular verb, always acts in singular fashion, but is in and of himself plural. Ministry, all ministry, must be plural and yet singular. This is a foundational truth. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If you didn't live through the 1980s, maybe you didn't see this. But mega ministry after mega ministry after mega ministry fell flat on their faces. And there was no one to help them up because there was no one that was their equal. Who walks in and tells Billy Graham, hey, brother, you were wrong. I love you, but what you, what you just said was wrong. Who can do that? Who walks in and tells that to Benny Hinn? Who walks in and says that to you fill in the blank? A singular model is corruptible because you only have to corrupt one person. But even if that were not its flaw, it's not how God designs a home or a ministry. And a ministry is a reflection of a home. He says, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one... (laughs) Amen. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, this is logic that nobody denies, and yet it does not make its way practically into the way that we do things. In our heart of hearts, we tend to view, because our worldview is Western and not Eastern, we tend to view the most efficient form of leadership as singular. And even when we do it as a couple, a husband and wife couple, it is a singular couple that everyone else submits to. You will not find these examples described as healthy in the Bible. You will find some of them in the book of Judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. You will find some of them in kings when a king is not particularly faithful to the Lord. But even the kings were supposed to work in concert with a prophet and the priest. In the Newer Testament, the word leader is never single. Not one time. It's always plural. You're hard-pressed to find examples of an apostle that is singular. And when the word is singular, it's in a list with other apostles. The reason for this is God always designed us to be yoked with people. 
that starts by learning to yoke with the other half of you in marriage. Then children are added and you're yoked to the same purpose. And then your homes are yoked to other homes with kingdom purposes. This is Samed. And the Bible even predicts a certain amount of ground that you can cover when you're yoked together. There is no prediction for the amount of ground someone covers by themselves. It doesn't exist. I don't know if you've been paying attention as a pastor. I I hear these reoccurring themes. For weeks now, the Lord has been speaking to this body and saying, you have to move your understanding from just a head knowledge to an actual practice in what we're doing. There's not anyone, if you've been here more than a week, who hasn't heard us talk something about team, about community, about covenants. But how are we each individually implementing these in our lives? We can shake our heads. Thank you, Pastor, for such a good explanation. And then go about as a singular entity trying to accomplish whatever it is that we think that we can accomplish. The Lord is is gently right now speaking to us and saying, you must get this right. There must be a maturity in what you're actually doing. Not what you can just say, not what you believe in, and you hear the team mantra and you go with that. But what are you doing in your life to show that your life is in covenant? That you are fighting in a team? That you are doing these things to advance the gospel and not just relinquishing ourselves to the world around us? Turn with me to Judges chapter 20. We're going to see this as an example. We understand the concept that if we're in a team, that we can fight and do more than we can do individually. We understand that, or do we? Or do we actually, in a biblical way, start to know what that's like? In Judges chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 8. Say there when you are there. 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 Amen. It says this, all the people rose as one man, saying none of us will go home. Not one of us will return to his house. This is someone else's problems becoming your problems. You see, you can see if you're really in a team, if you're only fighting and you're only concerned and all your prayers are wrapped around your fights, what you need, how much you're lacking, what you want, then you are not yet implementing team into your everyday life. What happens, what you see your pastors attempting to do, struggling to do, succeeding to do. My problems aren't my problems. I have brothers who can help me. When they have a problem, if, if Pastor Matthew makes a commitment, you know what he just did? He just committed me to something. I trust my brothers to make good decisions. And we've all, we've all faltered and said, yeah, I'm going to do this. And our brothers would go, hey, whoa, whoa, time out. You just committed us to something. And you know what my brothers do for me? They jump in and make sure that I won't fail. They'll rebuke me for making a stupid commitment. They'll chastise me for my independence. But what they will do is come and I have now created a problem and my brothers help me out. They decide that it's worth the team. It's worth the fight. It's worth the covenant to jump in. And we'll have our own arguments later about not doing that again in the future. And they won't let me fall. They won't let me fail. This is what you're seeing here in Judges. All the people rose as one man. Pastor, I'm sorry. As, as he's saying these things. Please don't think abstract concept of a team. Start thinking about the teams that you've already, by covenant, committed yourselves to. So let's let's talk marriage for just a minute. If you still think that she has a problem and you don't, you don't understand that you're already submit. 
if you think that it's his kids that are the issue and not yours, even if they came from some earlier catastrophe and you've now uh, united in Christ, I, I want to assure you, you share each other's fate. Half of marriage problems come from not understanding that, thinking the problem is with the other person. It's not possible. The Bible says you are one person. You, you are two, and yet you are one. Well, add this one more thing. The obstacle that lies between you and being in true unity and submit with what God's put in front of you is pride. And here's how. Whether it be uh, within a marriage, within a home, or within a ministry, none of us want to admit that we're actually weak in something. And that, that acknowledgement of that weakness then is a, a, a need or necessity to have somebody next to us. Moses' arms were weak. Joshua's ability to, to advance without their cover was weak. And so here we're reading in Judges that without their unity, they were weak as well. All the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it as the lot directs. We'll ask the Lord for direction and we'll follow it. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel, a hundred from a thousand and a thousand from ten thousand to get provisions for the army. Then, when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all the, this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. They knitted their hearts together. They knitted their purposes together. And they knitted their destinies together. What they were doing here is a group of people that should have and, and did and throughout history defeat the entirety of the rest of the tribes. They were outnumbered. They were overpowered. This is America trying to fight against Germany in World War II. The truth is, is we weren't even close to being as strong as that force. Don't let the fact that, that there was a victory on our side make you forget that we were outnumbered. We were out. They had better technology. And yet here, <laughs> what caused it to be a victory was that these men joined together in team. And they said, our fate is tied together. You cannot untie your fate from the people that you've been in covenant with. I cannot untie my fate from my wife or my children. If they succeed, it is a badge of honor to me. If they fail, it is a badge upon me. Our fates are connected. I cannot succeed and have my wife fail. It's not possible. It's not possible for us to have a singular victory in these times of trouble. These men knitted their hearts together. They knit their purpose and they knit their destinies together. Man, that's what we're working towards here. That's what we're trying to ingrain. That's what you're hearing your pastor say to you. It has to be more than a mental concept. You have to dedicate yourself to the purpose of one another. I promise you it starts changing the way you look at every day and every situation that goes on. Now, it was not in our plans to make this a marriage seminar, but it is central to my heart, my life. There's uh, no way for me to not do that. And if you're single, consider this bonus round at this point. Uh, one of the expressions of the failure in this concept is that your spouse is such a failure that nobody notices your failure. And so you start to carry your spouse's failures around like a trophy. And... Their wretchedness makes you look good comparatively. 
That is uh, like taking off half of your clothes and it, to make the clothed half look better. That it, it is your total shame. The reality is whatever is a weakness in the team is a total weakness for everyone. Um, there is no way around that. Now, throughout the biblical narrative, what happens is God's team is always outnumbered. In Deuteronomy 20, he says, when you see armies that are bigger than you, not, not if, when, when he was preparing them for war, he told them always you will be outnumbered. Some of the greatest battles in history and the, the things that movies should have been made about are guys like Hezekiah standing against Sennacherib. It's a totally superior force. He carried the heads of the previous kings to the gates of the city. He made such proclamations against Hezekiah and Hezekiah's God that Hezekiah was scared. But the prophet Isaiah showed up and strengthened him. And they stood their ground and they defeated that tyrant. If they had not done that, there would be no Judaism. There would be no Christianity. The world today probably would have given way to Islam that would later have risen. Now, I'm going to mention a movie in another battle because nobody made the one about Hezekiah. Okay? Most people are familiar at least with, with the title of the movie 300. I'm not recommending it. There are things in it that I think nobody should see. Uh, you can read good books about the Battle of Thermopylae and you'll find everything just the same. The clip we're going to show you is clean. It's, it's worth seeing. I want you to understand that about 480 BC, somewhere around the time of Esther, Xerxes is in power. He's enslaving the world. And the Greek city-states were going to fall. That, that much the movie got right. And there were only a select few men who lived, fought, and were willing to die together. That's what, that's what pulls at your heartstrings in this story. They formed a battle formation called the phalanx. The phalanx was somewhat triangularly shaped. And it, it required each man's shield to overlap the other man's shield. No man was responsible for simply his own territory. He was responsible for his own and a portion of his brothers. That kind of community unity was powerful. And they knew that if they got to a place that history calls the hot gates, where the numbers were narrowed and all of Xerxes' armies were unable to amass on them at once, but had to face them in similar number, that these slaves would not fight for each other in the same way that the free men would fight for each other. This movie clip is something that is worth thinking about as a better example of Christianity. The way that we are supposed to not just block the fiery dart of the enemy with, uh, that was aimed at you with your shield, but be looking to cover your brother's. You know, we cover each other, not our sin. We cover each other from attack. And the kingdom requires you to do the same. Let's watch that clip.
Now, of course, we had intended there to be sound for the clip, but you get the idea. The visual example might even be better. An overwhelming force, and it even took the team that was unified backwards a few steps, but only so far, because they stood together. And as they coordinated, they were able to advance against a superior force. That much is rooted in history. Throughout the Bible, we see this. We see uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer take on a whole garrison of Philistines. We see men that are unified. Now, what I wanted to emphasize to you is this doesn't happen through just wishes and goodwill. It happens through training. If you are too prideful to let someone know that you're struggling in your marriage, then how will you ever practice unity between couples if you're too prideful to let someone know that you are struggling in your individual christian walk then how will you ever practice unity as a couple if you hide things from your friends you'll hide things from your wife if you hide things from your wife there's nobody that that is safe the the kingdom requires us to look to our brother's interests consider them better than our own and start unifying to help our brothers accomplish their goal and allow them to help us accomplish ours. And we're going to find out they're aimed at the same goals. Doesn't that make good sense to you? That kind of training is what is going on here all of the time. We are looking, uh, when, when told, hey, I'd like to go to Peru next year. I'd like to see that. You find a brother that shares your same heart, that wants to do the same thing with you, and we will bless you to go. Well, what if there's nobody that wants to do that? You don't think God is big enough to move on a group of 150 people to raise one person up that cares about what you care about? Your faith's not big enough to go to Peru. Sit down and shut up. Is that too blunt? But if you do find one brother that says, Peru's not really my thing, but I see that it's yours, And I care deeply about you and I'm willing to go sweat. I'm willing to go sacrifice. I'm willing to go stand with you. And there is no quid pro quo. It's not based on them also going to yours, but that is what will happen. You know, in our Aswan ministry team, we're seeing this. Justin feels called to Jewish people. That is his heart. He's learning Hebrew, all of those things. He does not feel particularly called to uh, Islamic uh, ministries, but he knows that they're related and he's not willing for his brothers to go alone if he can help it. So the whole Aswan team also goes to Israel. That is an example of learning to work in teams. We have to begin to practice that now. Find couples that are motivated about the kingdom that you can sacrifice for them. And they in turn will learn to do the same for you. If you are single, Your whole singles group ought to be doing this. Look, I'm really interested in going out with this young lady. She's beautiful. The pastors have said she has good character. I have good character. They've given their blessing, but I cannot go alone. uh, Timothy says to pursue righteousness along with those who will. Which five of you will go with us? See, that's how this ought to work. A team. A team not just for accountability. A team so that we win. Amen. I want to share one thing. You guys look at us and you've uh, been pastored by us for either a couple of months or, or several years. It, this unity and this bond did not begin the day that we stepped into ministry. Disunity and bond between the three of us began somewhere around 1998. And God 
arranged with Pastor Wade, Pastor Eric, and myself. We're all just attending a church, being as plugged in as humanly possible to the vision of that church, and all three simultaneously working together to accomplish whatever vision that God put in front of us. We all knew that we would be in ministry together, but we had no idea the destination nor the time. But we knew there was an interconnection between the three of us that would eventually lead to doing exactly what we're doing now long time before it was visible, um, we had to see it in the spirit and make it visible. I met Matthew Pirro in a fist fight. The first time that I met Wade Sutherland was on a fishing trip and I hate fishing and I liked Wade, but I just wasn't sure what to think about him. And I said so to another brother who rebuked me flatly. I mean, just straight out a God ordained got me. And that caused me to sit and rethink about it. And before long, I loved Wade Sutherland. You see, your relationships as they exist today is not the same as the state that they will be in to come. But you will have to fight for them. Amen. Speaking about fighting for it, let's turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 and starting in verse 14. Come on, is this making sense to you today? It may not be the kind of word that you want to shout us down from, from the rooftops, but it may be the very kind of word that will actually cause you to be successful for the rest of your life. Verse 14 says this. When Abram heard that his relative had been capti- taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. If that doesn't move you, then you don't understand the passage. Abram had 318 trained men. It's one thing to have 318 men born in your household. That is a big old household. Come on, think about that dinner table. You know, I mean, that's a lot of people. But they weren't just 318 men. There were 318 trained men. My God, that is what we are going for as a church. We want to have a group of 318 trained men from this household. What about your household? That's one thing as pastors to say that. Oh, praise God. What about your life? What about your home? Can you rate, are you training up the children that you do have? Are other people being drawn to you because they see something that is so alive, that is so powerful in you that they're going, I can find training if I go into this household. I can find the word of God that will reform me, that will change me, that will strengthen me, that will empower me. And I won't have to do it by myself. There's a longing to be a part of this team. It is so strange. We, the reason that we can walk around with cult leader t-shirts poking fun at ourselves is because no one wants to do it this way. There, there's probably not one out of a hundred that would disagree with us openly about it, but there's probably not one in a hundred that will do what we do. This idea of having 318 trained men born in your household, it moves my soul. I mean, this is part of my calling in this world is to equip and empower you guys. It it moves me. Lord, I want to do that. I want to have such an understanding of what a team is like that we can have 318 or 518 or 3,018 men, families trained up, born in this very household. That's got to be what your goal is. It's got to be. 
You've got to have the idea and the understanding that you're going to have enough trained men that you can go back and take back anything that the enemy has tried to steal from you. Any relative? No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. We're going to go get you and we're going to bring you back. He went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided, Abram divided his men to attack them and routed them. Come on, somebody say routed them. Routed them. Yeah, that's not just a little bit like it was back and forth. He just routed them. Pursuing them as far as Hobath, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods. Somebody say all. All. Come on, all means all. And brought back his relative lot and his possessions. Abram didn't just go get the person. He got the belongings. He got his relative. He got the relative's belongings. He didn't leave a hoof behind. He went and got it all. Come on, that's the kind of tenacity that we have to have. We're not just talking about getting in a team. We're talking about fighting in a team and what a foundational truth that is. They weren't fighting for individual purposes. Check this out. They went and fought for everybody, everybody's children, and everybody's stuff. You know, that we see this kind of unity after a national disaster. We see it after a flood in small pockets by select people. We're actually called to live this way every day, all day. When, when uh, our friends in Louisiana flooded, they, they were like, hey, thank you so much for y'all's efforts. We do this every day. There, there's, there is no difference. We live together. We eat together. We share everything that we have all of the time. This was not a change for us. Say, I'm going to fight for my brother. I'm going to fight for my brother. I'm even going to fight for my brother's stuff. Fight for my brother's stuff. See... This is how you begin to build teams. So every bit of this ministry, every bit of our lives is focused and directed at making sure that you become households of trained individuals. And not just trained to fix cars, not just trained to know how to lay down tile, but train how to fight. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10. We'll start in verse 12. Say there when you're there. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Come on, it's good to know that God hears your prayers after 21 days of intercession. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Does everybody understand what a Calvary Comer is? The light and the heavy, it's a comparison. If this one thing is true that's light, then the heavy one is true as well, even more so. So if what we're talking about is the necessity to fight in teams, and that's something that is a standard for us as the body of Christ. And we also see this taking place in the heavenly realms with the angels that are warring in those heavenly realms. How much more is it important that we join in those teams as well? Come on, uh, Pastor Eric mentioned earlier that Hezekiah and Sennacherib or Sennacherib, He was facing the destruction of the entirety of the nation of Israel. And one angel put to death over a 100,000 men over in the course of a night. That's just one. So when we look at this accounting, and you see the magnitude and the power that just one angel has, and he needed Michael, 
a chief prince to come to his aid, do you realize the level of necessity that we need with each other and that we need with the living God and form that bond and that team to fight? It's really interesting. If you study archangels in the Bible, uh, which is a plural term in one place and only one named in the Bible, you find out there are chief princes. Uh, Even they are not singular. Everything in the Bible is built and structured in teams. We're going to put Revelation 12, 7. You don't have to turn there at this moment. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. What Matthew is alluding to here is that even the heavenly beings are organized into structures and teams. One of the Hebrew words for God, Yahweh Saba, is God of the heavenly host. He's, uh, it implies military order and structure into teams. My point here is that on earth we are to reflect the heavens. It's a foundational truth of the scripture that God organizes us into teams. If you skip to Revelation 21.4, you see this picture, the wall Uh, I'm sorry, 2114, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the apostle, apostles of the lamb. You recognize this scene? John is looking and he's seeing the beautiful bride coming down from heaven like a city. And what is she founded on? The foundations of the apostles. Now, we love Paul because we're Gentiles and we talk about Paul all of the time. Paul this, Paul that. The foundation of the bride of Christ is multiple, and yet it's one foundation. Isn't that interesting? This, this never stops. It goes all over the word. 1 Timothy 3.14, if we could put that on the screen for a minute. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of truth. Now string together these principles with me for a minute. If even the angels work in teams, if the bride of Christ described as a building coming down from heaven has multiple and yet a singular foundation, if God's household is reflective of your household, how can we not work in teams? See, it's it's foundational. At this point, independence becomes toxic. It, it, it becomes something that although apprised in our culture, fierce independence, not leaning on anybody, it's not the biblical culture. The biblical culture is recognizing your own weakness and trusting that God works through community, not just individuals. Now, it is admirable if the Lord has told you to do something and all others refuse to do it anyway. But to assume that that is the standard or, or what is normal probably is an in, inflated view of yourself. It's probably hiding a renegade, rebellious nature in you. Elijah thought that way for a minute, and God said, I have 7,000 like you in reserve. See, you're never, never without testimony. God said, let every matter be uh, established by two or more witnesses. Do you really think the calling he gave you is yours and yours alone? That's absurd. 
It belongs to the Lord. Psalm 138, 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose. Whose purpose? His for me. Well, he requires that it be done in covenant. And that starts in a household and moves outward. One last note, and we're going to move forward here. We have a limited amount of time, and we're throwing a lot at you. Do you find it difficult to agree on your children's names? Jennifer and I had no argument over Judah. None. We knew not one person named Judah, no argument. We had no argument over Gabriel, not one. When Abigail came, we had a battle royal. I was clearly right. I just, there's no point to this story. I wanted you to know I was clear. No, actually, if you think about the way that God designed this, the Hebrews took eight days to name their children. Do you know why? They were praying and a name was their function. How can you train your children if you and your wife can't even agree on what they're supposed to do? And you've waited now until they're in high school or college and you're trying to influence their outcome. You were supposed to start before they were born. You're supposed to be training them from birth to be men and women of God. He said, well, I've been doing that in a general sense. What do we all know about general studies? All right, let's move on. I want to share one thing. Uh, in relation to marriage, I want to fix this thing, make sure we cover it clear. That within a household, you don't have separate callings. What I mean is a husband has his calling and a wife has her calling. There is one calling on a household that every member of that household is pointed and going towards. There shall be no die vision within our households. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. Now, I got to tell you, as Pastor Eric was speaking there, you guys were kind of quiet for my taste. You were quiet. I hope that that means that you're actually considering these things deeply. I hope that it's really, really starting to pierce your soul. This idea of toxic independence has to be weeded out, and we can't do it if we remain passive about our thoughts and about our actions. Let's look at in Exodus 18 and verse 17. We're seeing that Moses had to learn this principle. Verse 17 says, Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. It's a good word. Good word. Says exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the mantra of every father-in-law. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. I mean, none of us in this room have ever worn ourselves out from doing things the hard way, have we? No. I mean, never. Never, of course. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God. Wow, what a powerful statement. This is what we tell our parents about you represent God to your children. Husbands, you represent God to your wife. Wife, this, this is what an understanding of the gospel will do for us. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and the laws and show them the way to live. Train those 318 men born in your household and the duties they are to perform, but select capable men from all the people. What is Moses' father-in-law saying here? You need to get in a team. You need to have this at work in your life. Select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. And appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. 
Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. Say all times. All times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. They will share it with you. You need people to share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain. Did you hear that? Are you having trouble standing the strain and errors in your life? I can assure you that if the strain is there, then it's probably an area where you are not operating in team. The things that you are most strained about is because you're trying to go it alone. If you haven't learned to take his yoke upon you, which is easy, and his burden that's light, if it's feeling too weighty on you and you can't do it and you're buckling under the pressure, it's because you're trying to do it. And you're toxically independent. Moses had to get someone else from outside of his life to say, hey man, you're not doing this right. Even Moses couldn't and shouldn't do it alone. And I can assure you, the truth is, is there's not one man or woman in this room that was anywhere close to being the man that Moses is. I mean, let's be honest. He is an all-time historic leader for the planet Earth. And he could not do it and should not do it by himself. What about us? You want to talk about a Calve Comer? If Moses needed team, how much do we? Yeah, it's it. We, oh, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, amen. He was told to. He was instructed. And my favorite part about this is he yielded to the fact that he went, wow, you're so right. I am wearing myself out. And it's not just about you. See how selfish we are? It wasn't just that Moses would be worn out and he needed to be more efficient as a leader. He was going to wear everybody else out. His lack of team was going to cause other people to strain and other people to expire under the weight, under the fatigue. This was for everyone involved. Man, there's something so satisfying about the unity on earth that reflects the unity in the heavens. Amen. I think it was Jethro. I think it was Moses' father-in-law. I think he spoke words from the heavens. And Moses yielded to it and it changed the entirety of the structure of Israel going forward. You see the elders, you see these teams being built at different levels, but the team is being the focused. It is good to have a personal unity. It is good to have yourself right with the Lord. Come on, Ray, isn't that true? It's good to have your life right with the Lord. Amen. It's better to have unity with a brother. But it's best to be in unity with a team of smed yoked Christians. When you say good, better, better, best, best, which is it you want? Best. best. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Joshua chapter six and verse eight. Once we read this. I want you to understand a few key principles from it. One, total unity is required for our victory. Total unity is required for our victory. We're talking about good, better, and best, and that we need to be a team of Semedios Christians, that our unity is required for victory. Each playing a part, taking their turn, and operating in shalom. So starting with Joshua 6, 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. 
and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, then the people returned to the camp and spent the night there. You know, it would have been good for Joshua to do this all alone, right? He'd walk around the city once each day, then seven in the final day. And powerful, anointed man of God. But it would have been better if Caleb had joined him, right? Tried and true, trusted brother. He and Caleb, the only surviving out of the first generation of, of Israel, out of Egypt. But it was best for the nation to do it as a Samed team yoked to a God purpose. Amen. Isn't that an awesome concept? Joshua was ready from day one. Caleb was ready from day one. But they had to wait until the entire team was ready to do it. Amen. See, there's something very important about that. If you wait to include people in the team that God is building until they're as ready as you, they never will be. Does that make sense to you? You have to see something that God is calling into existence, and then you have to fight for it. You have to build it. Uh, today, I was so happy when one of the pastors mentioned a whole family ought to be uh, working for the same purpose. Uh, my teenagers, they shook their head up and down and said, amen. I was like, yeah, it was just the other day. We were fighting about that. <laughs> you have got to fight for the purposes of God. If God had wanted my children to have some other purpose, then he would have put them in somebody else's house. He put them on this team because this team has a purpose. Does that make sense? We're trying to get you to look at what is good. That is you being born again, unified with the Lord. What is better? You working in covenant as a family. What is best? Families and covenants that are teams. Good, better, Best. Say it with me. Good, Good, better, better, best. In Acts 6, turn there as quickly as you can get there. In Acts 6, beginning in verse 3, we see a problem that's being solved. I love that the Bible shows us problems and solutions. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Now you could just see this as delegation, but notice we and our everywhere. They're making the decision together and they are entrusting the group of people that they have chosen to fix this as a team, not as individuals. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, notice it's plural, who prayed and laid their hands on them. Do you see how everything was a community activity? Now, let's examine something. What is the problem being solved here? There's an unequal distribution of food. 
Now let's just be honest. Shouldn't one man, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, as say Stephen was, be able to solve a food distribution problem by himself? The thought never occurred to them. That is not how they operated. They operated in teams. It never occurred to them to appoint a singular man for a responsibility. So they appointed a perfect number of men. They picked seven. Even though it seems to be within the capability of one, they knew that God functioned more adequately through seven people. And they trusted that they would be in unity, not gridlock. There is no recording of these seven men fighting over how to do this. There is no recording of the apostles having to step in and say, we should have made somebody the head. If you don't make somebody the head, it won't work. Because they weren't Americans. They knew how to work in a team. They knew its necessity. You see them throughout the book of Acts seeking the Lord together and making proposals that either agreed with the others or did not agree. And unity was their sign to move forward. How does that work for you? Have you resorted to this strange charismatic chemistry where you like hear a part of a song on a radio, see a part of a license plate, and that's your confirmation for everything? Because that has resulted in more foolish ventures than I can count. How about people that you're in covenant with and have known each other for years that see it in the word and all of you agree and you will not move forward unless they do because they're some of the only people on the earth that have the right to stand in your way and you've given them that right. See, there is a power in this concept to have a better return for their work. We want you to have that. They could have appointed one man to do this and it would have been good. Say good. Good. If they sent two for the task, it would have been better. Say better. Better. But the best solution was a team of seven yoked to the same kingdom task. Amen. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This team for the task is throughout the scripture. It is foundational to everything that the scripture has been built upon. Maybe you haven't seen it as many places as what we're presenting it to you today, but it is the foundation. Fighting in teams is the idea. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's not even about the individual or the individual contribution. Pastor, did you see what I did? Did you notice that I had a part? You're part of the team. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't be like the servant who's looking for, are are you going to pat me on the back? No, this is our job to do this. This is our pleasure to do this for him. It's only God that matters who makes things grow. Man, it's good to have Paul in your life. Somebody say, it's good. It's good. Well, that'd be an incredible thing. It's better to have Paul and Peter in your life. Somebody say it's better. It's better. It is best to have Paul, Peter, and Apollos working in your life. Amen. We want to build these kind of fighting teams with this smed kingdom yoke being our common purpose, our common unity, our community. That we are fighting for the common unity of our teams so that we actually have community in the way that the Bible instructs us to have it. Let's look further down in 1 Corinthians 3 and pick up in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. Let's pause right here. He's using the word I, but was it truly just Paul? No. 
No, not at all. Paul was first yoked with Barnabas, right? And when Barnabas and Paul or Saul at that time were sent to Antioch, they reported back to the apostles in Jerusalem. And as time went on, Paul was then yoked with Silas and then later on with Timothy. He was never alone as an expert builder, but he's laying down a foundational truth here. He goes on to say, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. You know, we are not to be evaluated on just fighting for the kingdom, but also the manner in which, which we fight and with whom we fought beside. The opportunity to build God's kingdom with these brothers on each side guarantees that we're all three going to be using gold, silver, and costly stones. That we are refining each other's discernment as we make in, in, uh, decisions and not just individual goals. The irony in all of this, by the way, for those of you seriously engaged in the scripture, I mean, for some of you, scriptures are like a footnote to justify your point. But for those of you that are seriously engaged in the scripture and the convictions and points that you would express to people are derived from the scripture, the context of this passage is that people were trying to break them into individuals. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. And Paul rebukes them all and then begins to describe the team. And somehow or another, we still see his description of the team as their individual work. It's the exact opposite of what he's saying. He's saying none of us has all of it. It requires all of us to work together to see God making it grow. See, because God wants to bless and work in a team. It is a selfish thought, a renegade thought, to believe that you have what it takes by yourself. Yes. What a strong word for us today. Man, the reason that we don't like to, to think about these teams is because either we're prideful we want to have our own kingdom. We can talk about laying down our lives, but the truth is, is we want to have control of our own lives. This idea that we have to lose ourselves in Christ, that what we desire is no longer anything compared to what he desires to be accomplished through us. Think about second Timothy two, two, as I quote it to you and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Well, we all want to be good teachers. Church like this, we want to be able to say the right thing. You have to be qualified. What does that mean? That means that your life has to be demonstrating this. That means that you have to be functioning in a team. This is what the apostles were doing. They were forming fighting teams as the foundation of the armies of heaven here on this earth. This is what we're doing as a church. We're trying to die to ourselves daily. And the best way for us to do that is to stay in a covenant relationship. When you're with others, it, you're not allowed to stay selfish. Other, too many other people are counting on you. Too many other people could go, what are you doing, brother? <laughs> hey, man, what, what are you really saying right now? Whew. Sorry, I, I got off working on my own there for a minute. Thank you, brothers. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> uh, the Sutherlands, we're learning how to love correction. We are learning how to love it. Anybody else need to learn to love correction in this place? Amen. This comes from being in the team. 
The reason that we don't, our lack of love for correction causes us to be toxically independent. When you're in the team, you learn how to love correction. I'm sorry, just to, to give a couple of illustrations. We're getting close to a, a point that we're going to close, and there is a yet more dramatic point we're going to get to. But I was just thinking, you know, I can't remember the last time that we went on a vacation or stayed somewhere alone. And one of the first things that is challenged, I like to stay up very late. If you all don't know that, you haven't been at my house much. It's not uncommon for me to crawl into bed as the sun is rising which means that it's a very special treasure to sleep a little bit later, you know. And, I mean, if you can get to 10 o'clock, that is like, that's what in my house we refer to as the best. <laughs> so when you go on vacation with somebody somewhere and you're all staying up and you're doing all the things that you do, one of the first things that strikes the heart of the Stevens is, what time do you think they'll get up in the morning? Because when you're staying with people, you have a responsibility to the people that you're staying with. Why do you like to ride in the car alone sometimes? Why do you like to be alone with you? Because you want to listen to what you want to listen to. You don't, you don't want another navigator in the car. You, you want what you want. See, it's built into us. And it will take real work to consider that a yoke left no room for individual movement. None. Jesus sent them out in pairs. A a yoke meant that where one went, the other went. And it was best if they walked in uh, step with each other. And how could you know whose step was right? You're both listening for the step of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? Yes. I think that uh, a good place to go with this, is that all right, Pastor, is probably Isaiah 33. So I want to tell you we're in the home stretch here, and this has been more of a teaching message than a preaching message, and that ought to be okay for you. Uh, you are a maturing church, and sometimes you need things to chew on, not just icing that tastes good for a moment. Isaiah 33, you are welcome. Isaiah 33, 6, I'm just going to be completely honest. I love that there's this many people that are this serious about the word, but I was doing exactly the same thing when there were nothing but rebels sitting out there. I know the truth sets people free, and some want to be and some don't. And the longer you do it and the more people that God adds to you that you do it with, the impact starts to be exponential. Isaiah 33, 6. He will be the sure foundation for your times. Say for your times. For your times. See, the idea that at some time this changes flies in the face of Isaiah. He will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. I want to unlock this treasure for you. The foundational truths of God's word never change. Everybody says they understand that, and then we're looking for a new, more relevant way to present the gospel. Everybody says they understand that, and then we're looking for a new program that will better attract people. Everybody says they understand it, but they think that because of their location, their occupation, uh, their perceived um, position in community their race, their language, their ethnicity. For some reason, it always has to be different. And if those things are not enough, then the squealing flesh comes right out of our mouths and we just say, you don't understand me. 
See, that's the whole problem, is the me and the I focus. The kingdom is never a me and I focus. The kingdom is how we fit together. The kingdom is the yoke that we share. It is the community that God is enthroned upon. There is really no such thing as individual sin when you think about it in that manner. Because your sin always affects the people that you're yoked to. And if the community of God fails to deal with sin, what does God do? He credits them with sin. See, everything that we do is interlocked and interrelated. That's why people call us a cult. But we have to be the only cult that promotes unity among ten churches. The only cult that has three co-equal pastors. When we had enough money to bring one pastor on board, we brought two. When we had enough money to bring two pastors on board, we brought three. We've lived below the poverty line for so long to set this example, and I don't intend on it changing. The point here is we value it because it is a timeless kingdom principle. Does that make sense? Say timeless. Timeless. So this won't change next month. This won't, won't change in 10 years. This is a principle that God himself established in the word. Hebrews 6.1 is another timeless principle. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Do you want to go on to maturity? Yes. A single life, an individual life will get as mature as it can. But how many of you learned something when you had children? Is that incredible? You could conceptualize everything before you had children, but there's just no substitute for not having slept in a few weeks, having to change a diaper and love the one who filled it. I mean, and now you're beginning to understand a little bit of, of, of the love of the, the father. We, we relate it to the love of a mother, but that's because she's filled with the love of a father. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation, foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. The number one principle that keeps people from being yoked to others and joining teams as they will not repent. Number one, my way is right. Nobody's going to turn me from it. I'm going to persist in it, even if it cuts me off from the blessings of God. Oh, no, that's not what you say, but that's what I hear. Everything in the Bible is based on relationship to the Lord and relationship to our fellow man. You cannot enter the kingdom until you repent. And here's another beautiful thing. You don't stay in the kingdom without repentance. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because think about your relationships now. I'm going to ask you to think of something painful for just a minute. Think of a relationship that you have some despair in. Like it's never going to get better. That, that is hurtful. I don't even like to think of their name. If that were a true kingdom relationship, you would always have hope that it was going to get better. Do you know why? The same Lord that is Lord of you is able to correct and encourage them. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? But individualism allows us to split. It allows us to break apart. It allows us to go our own way and think we're serving the Lord. You have to repent. Second Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation. Whose? God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away 
from wickedness. God's solid foundation are those that he calls into his team and they turn away from what they wanted to do. That's the foundation for every team. Is the de-emphasis of your priorities and the emphasizing of God's priorities exemplified through the group. Now, this may sound like a team-building exercise to you, but what it actually is, is life's survival guide. You know, most of my peers are not standing today. Most. I'm looking out and seeing faces, some of you I haven't seen since the early 90s. I'm doing exactly today what I was doing then, and I'm doing it with the same people, which is why we're still doing it. Because at some point, we've all been tired. At some point, we've all wanted to quit. At some point, we would have been defeated had we been alone. But we had a brother there to help us up. There's a better reward for two men's work. And if you can find three, what a blessing that is. I built a house with most of you. It was Mario Salinas' house in Mexico. How many of you were in Mexico that year that we built the house? Man, was that fun? Look around at the number of hands. Okay, cartel-ridden times. The very first thing that I did was take the elders to to Mexico. Uh, Charlie is a master builder. Baj is a master builder in another kind of way. And um, Charlie did something that uh, has gripped my mind since. I have formed foundations many times. I have uh, built houses from beginning to end many times. It's, it's like a pseudo requirement for ministry that you can build your own structure because nobody else is going to do it. And um, Charlie staked off an area outside of the square that is the foundation. Okay, so follow me. Think of a square in your mind. Now think of a square four feet outside of that. And he drew lines, uh, actual strings, at that outer perimeter. And to be honest, I was watching Charlie and I was thinking, you know, I, I love Charlie. He's got a very methodical way of doing things. I, there's no way I'm going to get involved in that. But um, it's a little slower than I would like. And, you know, I'm not sure we need to do that. Have you ever had a strong opinion that was wrong? We then went to the inner circle, the inner square rather, and we formed up two by twelves and, and got ready to pour concrete. We put all the rebar and things that were in it. And as we did, man, we beat those boards up. I mean, it was hard work. There were a lot of us. And from time to time, they were getting knocked out of place. And we always had that outer perimeter to look at and measure against that was unaffected. This reminded me so much. The Bible tells you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sometimes, though, that working process gets you a little beat up. You, you don't know which way to look. You need an outer perimeter to look at and see that you're square against. You need to be able to look and go, you know what? Our foundation is always Christ, but those leaders' way of life is something I want to measure against. For me, the elders are something that I measure my life against. I, I don't think I'll ever measure up to them. And I want to always be measured in relation to them because I admire the way that they live. I, I admire... Everything about the way they live. And we have strong differences among us. And I admire the way that they do it, even when it's different. I still measure off of it because it's right. We as pastors are trying to be that for you. 
That's why we lead worship in a team. It's why we preach in a team. It's why we're doing everything in a team. We're modeling a way of life for you. Do you need a reference outside of your home? Don't wait until the point that you need marriage counseling. What if you were sharing your life with other couples that were committed to seeing you succeed in the same way that you were committed to seeing them succeed? People that have never worked in teams are inherently selfish and they just don't know it. That really is what it is. When people see what we do, they say to me often, how do you all preach together? Like, how, how do you study together? How does that work? I don't know if I could do that. I always fight off a little smirk. The reason they don't know if they can do it is because they haven't. They don't yet know where they need to grow. There needs to be a reference outside of their life. Isaiah 28 says it this way in verse 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone. Say tested. Tested. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. The life of Jesus Christ is a reference point outside of your own for sure. He had an inner circle of three. He had a a perimeter of 12. Outside of that, he had 70. And outside of that, he had a whole nation that he identified with. He was never alone. And if that's not enough for you, he said he only said and did what the Father told him to say and do. And that he and the Father were never separate. Alone is not good. Somebody say alone's bad. Alone is bad. It's good to be one with the Lord. That's awesome. It is better to be one with the Lord and a family. It is best to have families joined together in common purposes. There is a video that we want to show you as we move at a closing. The tactic they were using in a very ruthless way was to sort of distract him one way so another male could bite him in a spine. They knocked him over and would just maul him and bite him for 15, 20 seconds. And then they would stop and they would move away. up again, they would come back and the barrage would start again. Mr. T by that stage would have been fighting for his life. I can remember him looking back at me. The fact that he was... I can see it's difficult for some of you to watch that. This is the Mopoho pride of lions. They took over more territory 
than any other group of lions in history. Actually, it was a specific one. Only one of those lions was, and they nicknamed him Mr. T. Uh, this is a famously documented group of lions, and we want to share something with you about that. Let's go to 1 Peter 5. We'll start in verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, one of the things that we want to bring up to you, Mr. T there was the one that was getting attacked. You should not feel sorry for Mr. T. That lion is a picture of the devil in your life. As we tell you more details about it, you'll understand, but you should not feel sympathy for that one. That was a, uh, incredibly aggressive. The reason they named him Mr. T was because of how he was treating other lions throughout his reign. As they would go into each new territory, one of the first things that he would do is go and eat, uh, eat all of the cubs, eat all of the children ravenously consuming the progenitory of the tribes. It's one of the only lions ever documented that not only ate the offspring of all competing lions, but he physically consumed the females that would not mate with him. You know, in the documentary, he was the hero. I stayed up between two and four in the morning glued to this. All I could see was a devil that the world was celebrating. He only wanted his seed, no room for anyone else. He was willing to kill all other children. The only females that were useful were the ones that were useful for his purposes. And you know what? Nobody was a match for him. That's a problem. Nobody was. Uh, he defeated almost all who came against him in individual battle. So six others went and found him. None of them were a match for him by themselves. So five rested while one fought. And then they rotated. And they did this for three days until they ended the reign of the devil in their lives. Church, I don't know if you're capable of standing up to what is coming against you. I preach that you are all of the time. I preach that I am. But the truth is, there are moments when we simply don't have what it takes. But if you had a brother with you that said... Hey, my shield's overlapping yours. I see what's happening in your life. Let me take this next shot for you. I will step forward. I will do my best. And while you recover, you will come back and we will wear this enemy out together. This is something more that the kingdom looks like. While Peter's in jail, they're praying. And then they all come together. But there's never a time when they're out of each other's thoughts and minds. You don't want to be independent. That's the one that the lion would pick off. You want to work in a team. You're now in something more than a team. You're in the family of God. If you can't find a team in the family of God, that says more about you than any other group. Say, well, pastor, I just don't know where to start. The foundation of the kingdom is repentance. It hasn't been as important as your own priorities. It hasn't been as important as your own likes. 
You've been too me focused. Today's a day that can change. The Lord told me in 2007, in a dramatic fashion, I know that you will die for the vision that I've given you, Eric. I was excited. Tears streaming down my face. It felt like affirmation from the Lord. And then came the second sentence. But I've called you to die for your brother's vision as well. And I realized what he was saying. This was good. But I have something better for you. And you're going to move to what is best. If you're in here and you're born again, that's good. If you have formed covenants with a lifelong spouse, with children, those kind of things, that's better. But if you want to do what is best, you're going to have to care as much about the people around you as you do yourself, which incidentally is what Philippians 2 says is required of every Christian. We've talked to you a lot about your mezuzah. How many of you can name your best friends mezuzahs? We're going to stand to our feet. We're going to begin to worship. And we're going to let the presence of the Holy Spirit settle on us. Now, the reason that I say that is if he doesn't confirm this message in your heart, then there's no reason for me to continue talking about it. But the thing is, I know the one that I got it from. And I know there's work to be done in this area. I know that we have an enemy prowling like a lion and he's been chewing up some of you. And I think if you let your brothers in on it, they will help you defeat him. Nobody in this church should stand alone. Not one. No family should stand alone. And we better learn to base our relationships on something more than a similar occupation, a similar color of skin, or a similar background. 